Father, I thank You so much for Your Word this morning. This is um, very profound for me personally. And thank You, Lord, for speaking uh, to my heart and showing these things. I pray, Lord, that we will all be touched by Your Spirit this morning. I pray that we would hear what Your Spirit is saying to each and every one of us in this church fellowship. That's the marvel of You, Lord, is You know our hearts intimately. You know what's going on in each of our lives, and so You know how to speak to each one of us. And I pray, Father, that uh, as much as I can get out of the way and just allow Your Word to speak, help us to understand perhaps some things we haven't seen or known before. Spirit of the living Christ, speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 48, we stopped at the end of chapter 45 on Wednesday night. And uh, as you know, if you, if you were here three weeks ago, we opened up almost a, a mini-series within our study through Isaiah, and that is looking at the five servant songs of Isaiah. The five servant songs. All of these servant songs talking about Mashiach, the Hebrew word Messiah. All five of these songs, prophetic of the coming Messiah, specific to, to Messiah himself. And these servant songs, all about Messiah, are, are fantastic. You know, we looked at the first one three weeks back, Jesus who serves, servant song number one, and that was in Isaiah 42, beginning about verse 11 and down through about verse 17. In addition to that, we're going to hear four more servant songs as we go forward. Servant song number two. Jesus who saves, Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Servant song number 3, Jesus who sustains, the Messiah who is sustaining in His work, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1 through 11. Servant song number 4, Jesus who suffers, talking about the suffering servant, the end of Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through Isaiah 53. One of the most profound prophecies in all of Scripture, in its intricacy, in its precision regarding the suffering and the affliction and the crucifixion of, of Jesus. Uh, it's one that as you read through it, and, and if, if you could take Isaiah 53 and put it on a transparency and overlay it over the history of Jesus at the crucifixion, it, it's flawless. And so we're going to come to that. That's the the fourth servant song, Jesus Who Suffers. And finally, the last one, a little further down the line, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, Jesus Who Is Sent. Now this whole section, uh, God through Isaiah is talking about His servant. At some points, He's talking about His servant Israel. He's talking about the Jewish people. He refers to the Jewish people as his servant. But at the time, the flaws in in their faith and the idolatry that was going on and the failures he addresses when he's talking to his servant Israel. But then all of a sudden he begins talking about this other servant, this Messiah who is perfect, who is faithful, who does it all exactly right, and who is a, a... the embodiment, truly, of God's heart, even for Israel, even saving Israel. And so we talked about that a few weeks back and how you can see the distinctions and the difference. And I began to think about, okay, what am I going to talk about on Sunday? Because the next servant song, the second one we get to, is Isaiah 49. And so in between all these servant songs, we did the first one, before we get to the second one, we're going to take an interlude, servant song interlude between the songs. Because you see, the five servant songs are all lyrics written about Messiah, but the passage before us this morning is spoken by Messiah. 
Jesus in the first person, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 48. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. He's talking to Israel. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him, and he will make his ways successful. Verse 16. Come near to me. Listen to this. For from the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Who's talking there? Now there's controversy about that. When I read this, from a Christian perspective, gang, I hear the Lord God, God the Father, has sent me, God the Son, and His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. I see very clearly, very obviously, in verse 16, the statement of the triune nature of God. But I'm biased. You know, I've been walking this road a long time. I read the Scriptures from a Jesus perspective. There are those who don't. Those who would say, no, you're you're, you're reading into this, Rick. You're not seeing this clearly. Well, it seems obvious to me, and perhaps to some of you, scholars are divided on who actually is doing the talking in verse 16. It's obvious that verses 9 through 15 are the Lord God, right? I mean, it's obvious this is God. He's been speaking through Isaiah to His people Israel through the whole book. So clearly it's God speaking up to verse 16, but you get to verse 16 and suddenly He says, Come near to Me. Listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place I was there. And now the Lord God has sent Me and His Spirit. Who is the Me in this verse? Some believe it's Israel. Some say Israel is speaking here in kind of a metaphorical, allegorical way. It's it's the voice, the singular voice of, of all the Jewish people, but there's a problem right there because it is clearly spoken in the first person. It's an individual speaking here. The words, the Hebrew words are singular, not plural. And so when he says that it is me, I am the one. It doesn't make sense that it would refer to the entire people, especially because up in verse 12, he says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I have called. Well, did Israel call Israel? Or did the Lord? So it it doesn't really work to say that verse 16 is Israel. All right? Stay with me in this. Some believe it's Cyrus. Remember, we talked about Cyrus Wednesday and, and a few weeks back. Cyrus the Persian who Isaiah prophesies about at the end of chapter 44, beginning of chapter 45, by name, he says, this man Cyrus. God says, I will call Cyrus. He's my shepherd. He's my anointed. I am anointing him to go in and wipe out Babylon and take over. And Cyrus will do that. I'm calling Cyrus to send my people back to the land out of their Babylonian captivity. And Cyrus does that. And so there are those who say, well, then maybe perhaps this is 
Cyrus speaking, but there are problems with that as well. For one thing, Cyrus was not alive at the time of this writing. He wasn't there. He wasn't there to speak this to Isaiah. Isaiah, write this down. It is I, even I, (laughs) who's going to do this. And so again, someone would say, well, maybe it's allegorical. It's just the Lord kind of putting these words into the mouth of Cyrus. to." And and again, you start getting too metaphorical, too allegorical with Scripture, you can make it say whatever you want. I don't want to hear what the metaphor is. I want to know what does it mean. Lord, what are you saying here? And who is the one saying it? This speaker is obviously clued in long before the event in question, which is the conquering of Babylon. But look at verse 16. Look at the beginning of it. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. Some say this is Isaiah. It's Isaiah. He gets so excited, he inserts himself in this verse. You know, Come to me! God's calling you, but i got something to say. I'm so excited about what God's going to do. Here I am. You know, And he jumps in there and writes a, a word here. Again, God speaking verses 9-15, through 15, maybe verse 16 as Isaiah kind of blurting a little bit. There are three problems with that perspective. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the first, we're drawing back a lot further than Isaiah. Isaiah was not there from the first. And the Lord was there from the first. Creator was there from the first, not Isaiah. And he says, by the way, I have not spoken in secret. That is a contrast to all of the pagan gods of this world who are secretive and mysterious and unclear and vague and esoteric. Do you know that a third of the, of the Koran is unintelligible? I'm saying even, even good Muslims can't understand it. It's, it's blabbering. One third of the book makes no sense whatsoever. God says, I haven't spoken in secret. I've made this obvious. My plan of a Messiah coming into this world, I've been talking about this since the beginning. Not being secretive about it. He goes on, he says, from the time it took place, I was there. Well, Isaiah wasn't there when this took place. The context of this is talking about the fall of Babylon and that Cyrus would come in and wipe out Babylon. That's, that's the context. That's what, what the Lord is, is explaining to Israel is going to happen. But Isaiah would not be there. He, he talked about this 150 years before. So at that time it took place, Isaiah was dead 150 years. And furthermore, the Hebrew language here is absolutely precise. The speaker is talking about himself and the Spirit being sent at a time after the events described in this chapter. After the fall of Babylon. After Cyrus sends the people back. In fact, the word, the Hebrew phrase, and now... Note that at the end of the verse. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Talks about a new day, a day further down the line. And now in the Hebrew, it's atah. It means henceforth. Kind of like after the fact. All this is going to take place. And then, and now, henceforth, later on. And note this, he says, the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Which is the third reason why this cannot be Israel. This cannot be Cyrus. This cannot be Isaiah. Why? Because if it was any of those three, they would have to say, the Lord God has sent me with His Spirit. But the use of the word and there indicates equality. He has sent me and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that would be like me saying to you all this morning, I come here with a message, me and the Spirit. You know, 
Spirit's going to speak, I'm going to speak too, and both are equally important, so please hear my words to you this morning. I would hope that if I ever said that, you'd stand up and walk out. Because we don't want to hear from Rick. We want to hear from the Spirit of God. But he says, me and the Spirit. He equates himself, the speaker in the first person, equates himself with the Spirit of God. That's why some scholars struggle with this being Messiah. Because for the first person speaker in this passage to be the Messiah, he would have to be God. Well, that's not possible. Well, think about it. For this to be Jesus, he'd have to be equal to the Spirit of the Lord. In addition, he would have to stand outside of the time-space continuum that binds us all. He'd have to be free to move about in eternity just like God the Father can. If he's going to be the one speaking right here back 700 years before his birth on earth. But you know what? That's the spirit of prophecy. That's the deal. Prophecy is spoken outside of time into time. That's why God knows what's going to happen. You've heard me say before, prophecy, gang, it's not, it's not what might happen or what we hope will happen. Prophecy is what God says will happen because He's already seen it happen. How could the cross be prophesied 700 years before it happens? Because God saw it. He was aware of it. He's not bound by time like us. And I know that rattles our tiny little brains, but it's the truth. So Jesus standing outside of time... The Bible says, Revelation 19, verse 10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Which means a couple of things. It means that that is what prophecy is all about. The spirit of Jesus is what prophecy is all about. And it means, listen, it means, don't miss this, it means that all Bible prophecy was spoken first by, listen, the spirit of Christ that this is coming from Jesus. That it is Jesus, through Isaiah, who talks about Jesus on the cross, Isaiah 53. It is Jesus the Messiah, the Spirit of Christ, who speaks. Where in the world do you get that? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. Peter, remember Peter who walked with Jesus... Who knew the Lord, first-hand witness. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Peter understood inheritance because Peter was a Jew. And the whole concept is it's different than we have today. The concept of the inheritance of a son from the father is, is huge in Jewish thinking. And Peter got that and said he's, he's just blown away. Through the resurrection of Christ, we now all are drawn into this inheritance, Peter says. He says in verse 5, For you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. 
And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now watch this. Verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets, which would include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, all the guys, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now some of you have read that before. That should just rattle our brains. That it is the Spirit of Christ through Isaiah bringing the message of Isaiah. That Jesus is the one downloading to Isaiah exactly what is on the heart of God. And Isaiah, among all the other prophets, in fact, I would even elevate Isaiah because his prophecy is fully messianic. All of the prophets talk about Jesus. But Isaiah is often called the messianic prophet because so much of what he says is is absolutely Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. As in the five servant songs we're going to hear. But in this interlude, what's remarkable to me is that we're not just talking about Jesus. We're not just hearing about Jesus. We're hearing from Jesus. Well, Rick, if that's the case, then the entire book of Isaiah is from Jesus, so this wouldn't be you know, that significant by itself. Okay, I'll give you that. But we hear Jesus speaking here in the first person. Go back to Isaiah 48. Jesus in the first person. Now, here's what hit me. Because I read the verse, and I thought the verse was cool, and I'm like, well, we could talk about that and the triune nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is, this is not a New Testament concept, by the way. Brothers and sisters, this didn't come about later on. This is in the prophets. And we could just sit in verse 16, but I'm like, well, and what the Lord said, listen, listen, I'm speaking here, Jesus, in the first person. Therefore, these words should inform us of Him. These words should speak to us of Him. We should understand more of His nature, more of His character, simply by hearing His words this morning. You know, there's, there's a phrase that we use. Sharon and I use it all the time. And perhaps you use it too. It started out on the East Coast back in the probably late 80s, early 90s, and it's just spread in our culture. And, and a lot of people use this phrase. And the phrase is, I'm just saying... How many of you use that? I'm just saying. Just saying. It's a phrase we use when we want to get a thought out without being responsible for it. You know? You're a dork. I'm just saying. That shirt is ugly. My grandma gave me this shirt. I'm just saying. Which is which is like saying, I still think it's ugly, but I'm just saying. You know, don't blame me for saying what I just said. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's, it's a way of hiding behind our words. You know, I only a moron could like this kind of music. Well, that's my favorite band. I'm just saying. <laughs> we throw it out there and we try to pull it back. The reality is you can't pull it back. Because our words give us away, don't they? Our words really do speak what is in our hearts. And you might try to say, no, I didn't really mean that. Yes, you did. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. You blurt something out and just because you tag on, I'm just saying, it doesn't free you up from what you just said. That's a little harsh, Pastor. I'm just saying. (laughs) It is a way of hiding and 
God never hides. You know, there's never a time with God when, when He's speaking and goes, Oh, i got words coming out. i got to stop my words, you know? It's like Brian Regan talking about going up to a woman, and Brian Regan, the comedian, and, and, and you know, say, Hey, when's that baby due? And recognizing and realizing at the last second maybe she's really not pregnant. When's that baby due? You know, it's like the words are out. I can't get them back. You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> what baby? The pandas at the zoo. <laughs> Here they're going to be born soon. You know, I mean, I'm just saying. God doesn't do that. Understand, He never slips. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, man, we really need to erase that one because that's not what I intended at all. When God speaks, when the Spirit of Christ says His Word, it is sure. It is trustworthy. It is true. It is solid. It is unequivocal. It will always, always stand. Which is to me what makes studying the Bible so remarkable because like, there's not a single misstep in the book. He means what he says. He says what he means. And what he says, what he speaks out of his mouth, dang, it, it defines, it expresses, it explains his heart. Who he is. What matters to him. How he thinks. Psalm 132 verse 2 says, For you have magnified your word according to all your name. What does that mean? That God equates His word to His name. Because His word is spoken just as His name is spoken in absolute truth. And so we can trust it. And so as Jesus speaks, we hear the heart of Jesus. I've been sharing, uh, especially on Wednesdays, I don't know if I've mentioned this on a Sunday morning, but I've been reading the book Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas and Tim Keller. I highly recommend it, especially if you, if you like history at all. It's absolutely astounding what was going on in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer back in the 30s and 40s during the Nazi regime in, in Germany. And as I, I read this book, and what impresses me so much about Bonhoeffer is, is and I'm learning, it wasn't just that he opposed Nazi Germany. And see, he opposed lies, and he opposed flimsy faith. And he wrote a couple of fantastic books, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together, among other writings of of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But this young theologian died before he even hit his 40th birthday. This young theologian had a profound impact on Germany in the day, but also on the rest of the world since then. And again, it wasn't just Hitler that he was opposed to. He stood up and he said to the church in Germany, which, by the way, another side note, the church in Germany, before Hitler came along, was preeminent in the world. Some of the best commentaries and Bible teaching we have comes from Germany prior to the Holocaust. Some of the most sound, solid, biblical scholarship right out of Germany. There were some brilliant minds, commentaries that I I still use, Commentaries, ironically, uh, especially in in view of the Holocaust, commentaries by by Germans who loved Jews, who loved Israel, who expected Israel to be a nation again because the Word of God said they would. And yet, Hitler rises to power and very insidiously and wisely begins to grab hold of the church. And what happened in the 30s was it began to even be called the Reich Church. Church of the Third Reich. Hitler knew if I can get in there and soil that faith, I can get control of their hearts. And he began to move that direction. So Bonhoeffer, among others, I'm giving you a whole lesson that's not even in my notes. That's cool. Bonhoeffer comes along, and he goes, we can't have this. And he, among some other pastors, began to stand up, and and it birthed what was called at the time the Confessing Church. 
And the confessing church was those who said, we will not have the lives of Hitler and the Reich. We will not be a state-owned, state-run church. We're believers in Jesus. We're going to teach the Word. You know what happened? Some of those pastors began to frustrate Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer began to look at the confessing church and say, guys, we're, we're being weak now. We're being flimsy. We're not teaching the Word. Bonhoeffer then would go to America, go to Union Theological Seminary, spend a couple of years there, and while he was there, realized that the teaching in America was pathetic. He said in the book, it talks about, he went looking and looking and looking for one church that simply had a pastor who stood up in the morning and preached the Gospel, preached from the Bible. And he could only find one, a black church in New York. The only one. Everywhere else he went, it was, it was just popular tripe. He describes, gang, in 1930, he describes what I believe has been the, the problem in the American church today. All the way back then, pastors stopped preaching the Word. Why did Germany go through the throes that it went through? How did the church crumble in the way that it did and only a few stand up like Bonhoeffer? In those days, they forgot the Word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his own word, all that to say, he said, we must be able to speak about our faith so hands will be stretched out toward us faster than we can fill them. Bonhoeffer goes on, he says, do not, I love this, Please hear this. It is so relevant to right now. Do not try to make the Bible relevant. He says its relevance is axiomatic. It's self-evident. The Bible does not need my help to make it relevant to your lives. All we got to do is be in it. The relevance is here. It is self-evident. Bonhoeffer said, do not defend God's Word. Testify to it. Trust in the Word. It is a ship loaded to the very limits of its capacity. Now, I experienced something like that last week. (laughs) I told the Wednesday crowd I gained seven pounds on the cruise. I don't gain... Thank you. I don't gain weight. I mean, not like that. Thank you. Those of you who see me in the suit on Facebook, I'm threatening. I'm going to wear that suit one Sunday morning and freak you guys out. Like, oh, we have a new pastor this morning? It's like a visiting dignitary. No, the the ship was unbelievable. I was standing in the back thinking, the the main hall of the ship, and I know I'm getting way off base, but that's okay. We got time. You got all day, don't you? The main hall of the ship had these staircases that went down to this central location, and it was from floor to ceiling, higher up than the barn. It was bigger than this barn. I'm just talking about the central location of the ship. Had these stairs coming down, had the big glass ceiling. Think Poseidon Adventure. That's what I thought. You know, when uh, those of you who have been around, you saw the old Poseidon Adventure. The ship literally turns upside down. The people are hanging onto the tables and they fall through the glass at the bottom. It's horrible. And I'm looking up going, I'm going to hold onto the railing because I am not going through that glass if we flip. You know, a ship loaded. I mean, there was. <laughs> Food everywhere. There was so much in there. You could, you could eat literally 24-7. And I tried to. <laughs> Bonhoeffer says the Word of God is a ship loaded to the very limits of its capacity. It is so full, so rich. You cannot... You, we will never finish eating what is in this book. All that said, and this is just, again, to support the significance of the words of Messiah as spoken in this passage. 
the character, the nature of Christ from the words that I believe He speaks through Isaiah in the first person. Go back to verse 9 and now let's consider this. He says, For the sake of My name I delay My wrath and for My praise I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Number one, note this, the patience of Christ. The patience of Christ. Who says, I delay My wrath. My wrath, I thought it was God's wrath. Remember what Jesus said in John 5.22. He said, the Father isn't even going to judge because He has given all judgment to the Son. I delay my wrath, Jesus can very rightly say. And the single reason that we are all sitting here this morning after 2,000 years is the patience of Christ. It's the patience of God. It's the only reason why we haven't been ripped out of here yet. He keeps looking around this world and He keeps seeing people. And I can almost imagine, Father and Son, I can imagine God talking, looking down from heaven and saying, okay, we should really do it today, but but He is so close. She's about to make the decision. And I've said before, there is one idiot out there who if they would just believe, we could all go to heaven. (laughs) Because He's just waiting. He is so patient. You know the verse 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let me explain more what that means. Romans chapter 3. If you want to turn there, great. Romans chapter 3. I think you should. You ought to see this again with your own eyes and hear it with your ears as well. Romans 3 verse... I have 23 up there. We'll go back to verse 21. And Paul is talking about this. And Paul says, he says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Note that. He doesn't say that the righteousness of God has been seen and witnessed to by the New Testament. Because the New Testament was not canonized yet. It wasn't in the form that we have it now. It was a few letters, perhaps one or two of the Gospels out there floating. Maybe. Gospel of Mark, perhaps. And Paul writes this and he says, no, the law and the prophets testify to the righteousness of God. And he goes even beyond that. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. What? What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying the Hebrew Scriptures clearly define and talk about Christ the Messiah. The Mashiach is the one in whom we believe. And Jesus fulfills all that. Therefore, the Hebrew Scriptures speak of Jesus Christ. He goes on. For there is no distinction. Distinction between who? Jew, Gentile, sinner, say out, everybody. It's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now watch this. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. That is sin before the cross. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's astounding. You're in the courtroom. The verdict has been given. The jury declares you guilty of sin. And the judge stands up and says, However... I'm going to hold off on judgment. I'm going to pass over. Interesting phrase. I am going to pass over your sin right now. 
You know God did that every year in Israel? Sacrifice would be offered. Passover would be offered. And God would say, okay, I'm I'm going to hold off judgment. I'm not going to bring upon you, as He says back in Isaiah, I'm going to restrain my wrath. I'm going to delay my wrath on you. Another year. And then the next year, Passover would come and it would be observed. And He would pass over their sin. Well, Paul blows our minds. He said, guess what? God's been, God passed over every sin ever committed by man all the way up to the cross. He didn't judge it as it deserved. Why? So that He would not only be just, but He would be justifier. He would be the one who makes it possible for you and for me to be just even when we're not. Amazing. The just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So go back to Isaiah 48. The patience of Christ. The patience. The, the way that God waits. And, and don't just take this on a theological level. You've got to get personal with this. Because for Jesus, it, it is personal. The patience of Jesus. Think about this. Mark tells us that there was a, a time that right after the transfiguration of Jesus... Right after this amazing event, he comes down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and this man comes running up to him. And the man is distraught, he's in distress, he's upset. There's a crowd of people and there's some kind of problem. There's a big brouhaha going on. I believe that's a biblical term, brouhaha. And this is all going on. And he comes up to Jesus and says, you've got to help me. He said, I went to your disciples, they couldn't help me at all. And Jesus said, what's the problem? He says, I've got a son who all his life has been possessed. He's epileptic. He, he, he throws himself into the fire and I have to pull him out to keep him from burning. He throws himself into the water. i got to pull him out to keep him from drowning. Parents, think about that kind of a life. For all the challenges you may have as a parent with your kids, think about having a kid whose epilepsy was so bad that you couldn't sit by a campfire with them because they would dive in. You couldn't leave the room during bath time because they would submerge and drown. And all of his life this man had been dealing with it. Now it's a young man. So we're talking like a teenager, perhaps a, a young adult. This has been a long time of, of distress and depression and heartache for this father. And he goes, I brought him to your disciples. And they couldn't do anything. And apparently there had been some arguing and talking about why they couldn't. I, I just, me going outside of Scripture here, okay? But I imagine the disciples gathering around and going, Oh, we got this one. Alright. Demon, come out! And the guy goes into an epileptic seizure and stays the same. Um, Thomas, why don't you give it a shot? I'm just going to step to the back of the line. And one by one, they're trying. Nothing works. And the man sees Jesus and he goes, that guy's the leader. i got to get some help here. You know what Jesus said? Mark 9, 19. He said, oh, unbelieving generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they do. They bring the boy to Jesus. And he casts out the demon and heals him immediately. Now, this is remarkable. Because before that happened, Jesus said to the man, how long has this been going on? And he said, from childhood. And the man blurts this out. Don't miss this. He goes, if you can, ta- if you can help us, take pity on us. And Jesus marvelously says, if... See, the guy blurted out. I'm just saying. (laughs) If you can help us, if? Jesus says all things are possible to him who believes. And the man screams out the prayer that should be on the lips of every person. I do believe. Help my unbelief. 
Here's where I'm at, Lord. I I believe in you. But obviously, I'm missing it. Help my unbelief. Great prayer. And by the way, that is not a prayer of disbelief. That is a prayer of faith. And a great one to pray. So Jesus heals the boy. When Jesus said, Oh, unbelieving generation. He wasn't talking about the distraught father. He was talking about the disbelieving followers. He was talking about His apostles who couldn't get the job done. Well, Rick, how do you know that? Because later when they're alone with Jesus, Matthew tells us that they asked Him, why couldn't we cast out that demon? And Jesus says to them, Matthew 17.20, because of the littleness of your faith. Oh, unbelieving generation. He said, truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. Is there anything in your life that seems impossible? Is there any friend or family member that you just think there's no way that they possibly could ever come to faith in Jesus? Just impossible. Nothing is impossible. If you just believe. And Jesus uses that radical picture of tossing a mountain into the sea. I did this, and my faith was so great that as we traveled up Tracy's arm in the inner passage of of Alaska, I said to the mountain, be moved. And there were icebergs in the water floating around us. Pretty impressive. (laughs) Didn't really happen that way. The followers of Jesus must have been absolutely exasperating to the Lord. I mean, think about it. Peter. Peter, no, no, no. Let me let me explain. James, John, no, don't ask that. Guys, can you imagine? I mean, they, they'd sit around the campfire and Jesus explained something, and he goes, "Now, do you guys all understand?" Yeah, we got it, Lord, we got it. And the next day, he's going, "Oh, you guys, didn't we talk about this last night?" Absolutely exhausting. Oh, the patience of Christ. Did he ever quit on a single apostle? Did he ever give up even on one? Did he give up on Judas? Judas gave up. Jesus never did. Take it personally, he will not give up on you. He is not a God who quits. He doesn't say, oh, this one's out of my hands, I just can't do this. No. He is patient. He perseveres, and through all things, he is refining their faith. Man, I... I, Would any other friend put up with the guff that we give Jesus. I've lost friends just because I'm an idiot, you know? And I look at Jesus sometimes and go, why do you put up with me? Why do you keep walking with me? Why do you hang with me? I'm always blowing it. I'm always questioning. I'm always full of doubt. I must be exasperating. And the answer is very simple, gang. He doesn't give up because He's refining us. He's changing us. I am not now what I will be then. I can't wait to be what I'm going to be then. But look at verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. The patience of Christ all has to do with the purification of Christ. The purification of Christ. What does he mean that he doesn't refine us like silver? What does that mean? Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Silver, he says in verse 10, silver is it's refined in fire. And Jesus says, I don't refine you that way. What does that mean? 
It means his refinement is far more severe. Now hold on for this one. (coughs) To melt away the sins of the heart and the doubts that we have and the faithlessness that we struggle with, Jesus will take you, will take me into the furnace of affliction. It's not just Jesus allows you to go through hard times. He will take you into hard times. Now, if, if you're on this side of belief and you're not sure about Jesus, that may be a real downer for becoming a Christian. So ignore what I, I'm just saying. You know, ignore that. No, don't ignore it. Understand this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the furnace. And it wasn't just to prove something to Nebuchadnezzar. I believe God was also doing something with their hearts. And the good news is, well, a couple things. One, when they went into the furnace, they were ready for the furnace. And secondly, when they went into the furnace, Jesus was there. Nebuchadnezzar looked in and saw one like a son of God walking around in the furnace with them. So he's going to take you into the furnace of affliction. The word affliction in the Hebrew, oni, means suffering, hardship, poverty, misery, so much for the prosperity gospel. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that if you believe in Jesus and you follow Him, you will go through hard times. Guaranteed. Well, why would He do that? Because He's refining you. Not like silver. But He's refining the heart, which takes a heat that far surpasses the heat that can refine silver. The purification of Christ. James and John, who were called by Jesus the sons of thunder, you know who thunder was? Their mom. I'm sure of it. James and John come to Jesus. And Mark tells us, the two sons of Zebedee, they came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now when my kids come to me and say that, I always say, what do you want first? (laughs) I'm not agreeing to do anything. Anna Marie, she's, she's great at this, isn't she, Cheryl? She'll come up to us and go, will you do what I want you to do? What do you want me to do? Well, tell me you'll do it first. <laughs> now, I know this game. I played it three times before you came into this house. <laughs> what, what do you want? What, what do you want, he says to them. And they say, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Now, what's great about this, and the reason I say mom is, is thunder, is she's the one who asked. We actually find that out from Matthew, that it's John and James and John's mama who comes up. Jesus... You and I both know my boys are special. So I need you to give them special seats next to you. I'm serious. And that's why they call me Thunder. (laughs) So, So Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't even have a clue what you're saying. He says, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Of course, they and their mom all say, Yes! We can do it! You don't know what you're asking. And then Jesus says these, and these are ominous words, gang. He says, You will drink the cup that I'm about to drink. You will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What are you saying, Jesus? Guess what? Hard times are a-coming, James. Hard times are coming, John. James would be the first disciple martyred. First apostle martyred. John would be the last one to die, having lived an awful long time. And tradition tells us they tried to kill him by throwing him in a pot of boiling oil, and he survived. Which would have been before his exile on Patmos. 
yeah, you're going to go through this. You are going to drink my drink and you're going to be baptized with my baptism. Gang, we will all, we will all, to a person, we will all, as followers of Jesus Christ, be refined by affliction. And it may look different for you than it looks for me. But we're all going to go through it. Not very encouraging, Rick. I'm just saying. Indeed, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christian brothers and sisters, listen though, when life gets hard, when it seems unbearable, remember two things. Number one, we are being refined. And number two, as Paul says, no temptation has overcome you, which is, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Yeah, but that's just talking about protection from temptation for sin. It doesn't say that. He says from temptation. Yeah, but what about my afflictions? What if I'm going through hardship and and affliction that has nothing to do with my sin? What if I'm the person who life is just terrible and I really didn't do anything this time around to earn or to deserve this particular thing? God will give you the strength to go through it. Because that word for temptation that Paul uses, parasmos, it means temptation. Yes, it also means trial or proving. And God is going to prove you. And He'll do it through hardship. He will do it through... Affliction. Everyone goes through a baptism of fire. Job said in Job 23.10, He knows the way I take. When He has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. John the Baptist said about Jesus, He who who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove His sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Bible students, what is fire a picture of in the Bible? Wait, someone said purification, refinement, yeah, you're right. But there's another judgment. Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, wonderful, and with judgment. But understand this judgment game. It works two ways. We can either go through the furnace of affliction, in which Jesus refines and purifies His people, or we can go through the furnace of judgment into which a Christ-rejecting world will go. Well, that doesn't seem fair. It's totally fair. You have the choice. You can be refined and purified by the Lord, and it will be hard, and it will be painful, and it will be difficult at times. Or you can be judged. Which one do you prefer? But I thought grace saved me. It does. But hardship refines you. And that's what we're talking about. Why does Jesus do it this way? Go back to Isaiah 48. Why does He do it this way? Because this is all extremely personal to Jesus. Look down at verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. The personal approach of Christ. Patience of Christ, purification of Christ. Number three, the personal approach of Christ. We have got to remember what I started out with this morning. Is that everything from first to last has always been about Jesus. It is personal for Him because it is all about Him. 
Paul says in Ephesians 1.9, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. What does that mean? Just hang with me. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. Paul says, you can't miss this. It is all about Jesus. From beginning to end, first to last, heaven and earth, it is all summed up. It is in Jesus. From the creation to the cross to the consummation of all things, all this is about the Christ. The entire vast plan of God. Jesus said in John 5.22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son, so that, listen, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. I've been asked by people before, is it okay to pray to Jesus? You know, or should I just say in Jesus' name? I'll use that as the tag at the end of the prayer, but make sure I pray to God because I don't want to get ahead of God. I don't want to thank God by praying to His Son. Same difference. I mean, it truly is, Jesus said, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. So there are times I pray to God the Father, say, Father, I just need you here. Times where in my flesh as a, as a kid, as a child of the King, I just need Dad. You know? Times when I say, Lord Jesus, I, would you just walk with me today because I need a friend. And either way, we're talking about the same God. And understand, as we've seen many times, Jesus leaves us no option but to accept His divine equality with the Father or to reject Him completely. Those are the two options. Because He said, I am one with the Father. So either He is or He isn't. It can't go both ways. Verse 12. It's personal to Jesus, and so He says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am He, I am the first, I am also the last. This is the third time we've heard Him say this in Isaiah. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. Whenever I call to them, they stand together. Jesus is talking here again and He's expressing of Himself the preeminence of Christ. Number four, the preeminence of Christ. Patience, purification, personal approach, and the preeminence of Jesus. Now, keep your finger there and go over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I heard that Jake went an hour and 15 minutes last week, so i gotta, I got to challenge him on this. I'm kidding. I always go an hour. Anyway, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Please listen carefully to Paul's words. He's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Ah, ah, see right there, He's firstborn, He's created. Put on your yarmulke, your Jewish thinking cap, and understand this. The firstborn for the Jewish person is the heir apparent. The firstborn in the family was to be given all the rights, authority, and privileges of the father. Without the same level of recognition and authority as the father would. And so to say Jesus is the firstborn of all creation is to say Jesus is the heir apparent. Jesus is the one that when He comes, takes that mantle and is the one to whom we go. He is the one we worship. Verse 16 going on, For by Him all things were created. In the heavens, on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him 
and for Him. And note that it's not just planet Earth. (laughs) It's everything. Which means Jesus created the angels. It means Jesus created the principalities. Jesus created the invisible as well as the visible. It's not that God created all this other stuff, including, you know, Jesus. He he created Him, and then together they created planet Earth. Jesus has always been in the same way that God has always been. He is before all things, verse 17, and in Him all things hold together. Which means if He lets go... I've talked about this before. He's the atomic glue. He's the nuclear glue. They find out in the center of the atom that there's something that holds it together when it should not hold together. That every molecule, every atom should explode because it has both positive and negative uh, particles in it that should blow apart. Why does it hold together? And scientist goes, nuclear glue. Okay? It's brilliant. You know, Elmer's. That's what's holding the world together. No, Jesus. He holds all things together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Oh, oh, there he is, firstborn from the dead. So he's the firstborn he's created. No, no, no. He's the firstborn from the dead in that he's the first person ever to die and come back not to die again. Everyone else who's died is going to die again. Even those who are resurrected. I mean, bummer for Lazarus, you know? Hey, Lazarus, you've been raised. Outstanding. You're going to die again. (laughs) Not Jesus. Firstborn from among the dead. So that, why? So that He Himself will come to have first place. Some of your translations say preeminence in everything. Can it get any more clear than that? He is the preeminent one. Jesus in the first person declares Himself to be the first person. The preeminent one. And so in the revelation of John, or to John, Jesus says about himself, Behold, Revelation 21.5, I am making all things new. Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then Jesus said to John, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Just as I said before through Isaiah three times. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And listen, Jesus talking in Revelation says, And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Again, it's so clear. For those who would undermine or ignore or push back against this idea of the preeminence of Christ, remember, he does not leave us that option brings us to number five. Last thing I want to share. The passion of Christ. Note this in verse 14. Jesus still speaking. Assemble all of you and listen. Who's He talking to? Everything. Every created thing. As we just saw in verses 12 and 13, He describes all of creation. Everything that He's done. And then He says, Assemble! Assemble the created world. Assemble the created eternity. Everything that is. Assemble And listen. And then he says, Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him, and he will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him, and he will make his ways successful. Who's him? Because in verses 14 and 15, suddenly now, if this is Jesus talking, He's talking about the Lord loving Him, not Himself. He's 
There's a him here. Who's the him? This is Cyrus. Now in the context, again, he's talking about Cyrus, who is the one who will carry out God's good pleasure on Babylon. Cyrus the Persian, who will do this. He's going to carry out this. But note, it's an amazing statement that the Spirit of Christ makes here. He says, verse 14, the Lord loves him. What's so big about that? God is love, right? Yeah, the Lord loves Cyrus. Cyrus, gang, when he conquered Babylon, did not believe in the Jewish God. He was not a believer. That's one of the things that's so remarkable about the prophecy of Cyrus. God reaches outside of Israel to a Persian and says, you're going to do my will for my people. (laughs) And he does. But the astounding thing is to hear Jesus say, the Lord loves him. Yeah, but he wasn't a believer. Why would God love him? Listen, the flimsy answer is to say, because God is love. Now, yes, God is love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Yes, God is love. That's not why He loved Cyrus. He loved Cyrus because Cyrus would obey His will. He loved Cyrus because Cyrus was going to do what God called on him to do. And Jesus is always, always passionate about people who are obedient to Him. In his book, Antiquities, Josephus writes, we talked about this Wednesday, that Isaiah's prophecy, that is calling Cyrus by name in chapter 44 and 45, that that prophecy was brought to the attention of Cyrus when he conquered Babylon. Somebody came up to him. I've said that I think it would be really cool if it was Daniel. You know, The old prophet walks up and Cyrus is coming in, conquering the kingdom of Babylon, and, and Daniel goes up to him and says, You're Cyrus, aren't you? How do you know that? I read your name from one of our prophets who wrote it 150 years ago and said you were going to do what you just did. Really? We know for a fact, gang, that Cyrus was so impressed by Isaiah's prophecy that he determined immediately to sign the release of the Jewish people and to send them back to rebuild their temple and go back to their land. Cyrus obeyed. We don't even know if he realized it. We know that he saw his name in the prophecy. And so he reacted. He responded. Did you do it out of faith? I don't know. But he was obedient. And God loves that. The Lord loves the obedience of people. And I want you to get this. Probably more important than anything that we've seen this morning. I want you to understand this dynamic about obedience and we'll be done. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said... He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He says in John 14, 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear, or the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, when Jesus says this to a non-believer, it might sound like conditional love. Like Jesus saying, hey, you've got to prove yourself here. And that's not what He's saying. His love is unconditional. But the condition of my love, the proof of my love, my passion for Jesus, is my obedience. Let me put it this way. The degree to which you love Jesus is predicated on the degree to which you obey. 
You can say you love Jesus all you want. Prove it. Obey Him. Well, that sounds a little legalistic. Not at all. In fact, it takes legalism completely out of the picture. Here's the deal. Don't obey Him because you think it's the right thing to do. Don't obey Him because you think by keeping His Word you can be more righteous. Obey Him because you love Him. Period. Make it about the love. If you've got something in your life where you know you're being disobedient to the will of God, don't go, oh, i really got to get my act together to prove. No, just love Him more. Because invariably, the more we love Jesus, the more we want to do what He's asked us to do. The more I love Him, the easier it is to turn away from my disobedience. Because I look at an opportunity to disobey and I go, Oh, but I love Him so much. And I want to live for Him because I am passionate for Him as He has been passionate for me. And He proved His love by dying in absolute obedience to the Father. Showed us all once and for all that He loves us. And so now He says to you, Hey, if you love me, the whole commandment issue is not going to be an issue. Obey me because you love me. Gang, how immediately do you respond in obedience? You've got to take this personally this morning. If you don't, this whole thing has been a waste of our time. Obey Him because you love Him. Is there some area in your life that you know that He wants you to obey? And you're not. Maybe the reason you're not is you've misunderstood, as I have, that it is not about keeping commandments, it's about loving Jesus. Frame it in His love. What is it that He's calling you to do? That today you'll do for no other reason but that you love Him. I just love Him. And I struggle with this. I mean, he tagged me this weekend. I'm not going to tell you what. But He tagged me in an area of disobedience. And just this morning I was thinking about this. Wow, Lord. <laughs> if I love you, I'm not going to do that. If I love you, I'm not going to be found disobedient in this area of my life. And every one of us have one of those. You know it. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> we all have something in our lives where we are a step back from Jesus and we're going, look, I'm at church. Isn't that enough? How much do you love it? It's been said you only love God as much as the person you love the least, and that's convicting. But I would change it. I would say you only love God as much as your willingness to obey. What's the purpose of a sermon like this? Is it only to clarify the character of Christ? No, it's much more. Because the character of Christ, Jesus speaking in the first person, calls us. The patience of Christ calls us to repent. The purification of Christ calls us to persevere. The personal approach of Jesus calls us to His heart. The preeminence of Christ calls us to our knees. And the passion of Christ calls us to obey. And so Jesus says, come near to me. Listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. How much do you love it? Father love you so much. I truly do. And I am so, Father, just sorry for where I have disobeyed and not loved you like I know I do. 
And I'm asking, Father, for You to change. Give us a paradigm shift in our heads and in our hearts today so that our acts of obedience and following Your will has nothing to do with trying to be keepers of law, but has everything to do with how much we love You. Would You just tag our hearts with Your love and teach us, Father, what it really means to love You. In Jesus' name, Amen.